Hey, everybody, welcome to Trashy Divorces, a good podcast about bad relationships. My name is Stacy. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm Alicia, friends. We are back this week with a little bit of trashy on a different level. This story has been requested many times, and it seemed like the week to get into the sad and tragic tale of Barbara Daly Bakeland. Also, dark and distressing tale. Stacy, you're really on that. It is shocking, all of it. And it is trashy in not our usual typical fashion. This really is very much a Greek tragedy. There's a family haunted with mental illness, a stunningly beautiful red-haired daughter with her own penchant for danger, lives of excesses. This tale includes adultery, madness, incest, matricide, One of those things would be enough, but this story has them all. It is definitely the darker side of trashy divorces. Yeah, this is probably the darkest maybe we've ever done. Hence, giving you a little bit of advance warning here, this episode does include some more serious themes, especially in the last section of the story about 30 minutes in. Listener discretion is advised. Before we begin our darker, trashy journey today. We do have some names right here in the magic mirror. So many thanks to give out to these new folks who've joined our Patreon community for all the -the behind-the-scenes trashy, including ad-free episodes and multiple bonus episodes every week, too. We are so grateful. Thank you so much for joining us at patreon.com slash trashy divorces. Natalie G, MB, Megan S, Kristen P, Lacey S, Lindsay B, and Meryl B. Holy cats and a new super supporter as well, Patricia. All y'all, thank you so, so much for supporting us over on Patreon. Thanks to our existing Patreon supporters. Thanks to you for tuning in today for this. Everything you could imagine, all wrapped into one episode. I guess we'd better. Go, go, go. Alicia, what in the true crime tarnation do you have for us this week? It's a lot. <laughs> it's a whole lot. It's a it's a you, lot of threads, you've a been, lot of themes. You've been hinting at some... Some darker edges than we normally go to. I will let you know, just first off, that Barbara Daly Bakeland is a character that you will not ever forget. Our dear Barbara is a left-handed girl. She's the focus of our tale. What do they say about left-handers? They're sinister. Between 10 and 12% of the population is left-handed, so we can't put DNA and left-handed traits into this particular Greek tragedy. Okay. Do you want to follow up just, though, on the word sinister, which comes from the Latin, originally meaning left. Even back in Latin, though, sinister had already taken on a more nefarious connotation of wrong, unfavorable, perverse. Historically, people see left-handed people as weaker, less favorable than the right. It has a whole thing. Not pertinent to this tale. The thing I want you to know about Barbara is she has porcelain white skin and flaming red hair as well. Like all of this is enough to render Barbara visually striking, but there's a lot more to her story. Barbara Daly 
was born September the 28th, 1921. The Dailies are a pretty ordinary family. There's a mom and a dad and a brother. They live in Cambridge, Massachusetts. But maybe they're not quite so ordinary. Barbara's mother, Nina, was released from a mental institution shortly before Barbara's birth. Hmm. Nina is a delicate mother, very much loves and nurtures anything Barbara wants to do. Barbara's father perhaps has some bend to mental illness as well. Seems a little toxic, mom and dad. But life is okay. It's the roaring 20s and all of that. And everything's fine until dad loses all of his money in the depression Mm. and things take a turn about this time. I think 1932, Barbara's 11 and her father, having lost it all in the depression, will commit suicide. Yikes. By carbon monoxide poisoning within the closed garage of the family home working on their Pierce Arrow. Now, dad engineers this to look like an accident. For insurance money. Exactly. Insurance money will pay out and can be collected at some future date. Sadly, Barbara's brother will also die very young. He's involved in a car accident. So with no men to hold them back any longer, Mama Nina and Barbara, with finally the little bit of larceny money from Dad's life insurance policy coming through, Barbara and Mama take off to where else? New York City. Hmm. It's the late 1930s. And with all that daddy payoff money, they are going to get themselves a suite at the Delmonico Hotel. The Delmonico is only one of the names that this legendary building located at 502 Park Avenue in Manhattan has had through time. It was originally built in 1929. Its original name was the Viceroy. It was then renamed to the Cromwell Arms. But by the time Barbara Daly is a teenager with Mama in tow and a suite at the Delmonico, it's been renamed. It's a famous place, famous throughout the decades as a hotel at first. It is at the Hotel de Monaco, August the 28th, 1964, that Bob Dylan introduces the Beatles and Brian Epstein to marijuana. There's a lot of history a, in the Del Monaco. A storied building, yeah. Much of this history is long forgotten by now, but in 1974, the building was converted into private apartments. Not that the hotel's Larger rooms did not stay in use for other purposes. For a while in the 1970s, the Grand Ballroom at the Delmonico was the first international auction house for Christie's. Hmm. There was a famous lounge, too, in the Delmonico called Regine's. Holy cats, I've got a whole follow-up on Patreon this week about it. Regine's is a favorite of the Studio 54 crowd, including Andy Warhol, a lot of history. Again, all of that is long forgotten in the spider webs of time. The Hotel Delmonico is now not known as that. It now goes by its new name, Trump Park Avenue. Hmm. Bit of a tangent there. Let's get back to Barbara. He was not really had it easy. Fathers died. Brothers died. Tragic, no doubt. But Barbara's good looking, like really good looking, and Barbara and her mama have plans, so it's off to New York City. They're living in the fancy Delmonico. Barbara is modeling for Harper's Bazaar and Vogue as well. 
Barbara is known as one of the 10 prettiest girls in New York City. She's really good looking. Yeah, that's quite a competitive market, let's say. But hey, modeling only takes up so much time. There's definitely time spent in Barbara's day developing relationships with handsome and wealthy men. Barbara's really looking for two things. I mean, the money will do, but it's nice when they're handsome and they adore her as well. What I want you to know is from this young stage, Barbara is not exactly mentally on a level ground here. She has been treated at this time in New York City by Robert Foster Kennedy. He is one of the founders of neurology. There are things named after him. He's a pioneer in the field. He will treat Barbara Daly at this time and is downright frightened by her psychosis. Hmm. He never reveals what that is. He'll never say what it is, but he's terrified by her. This is a groundbreaking pioneer of neurology who is so unnerved by her. She scares him. And does this imply some sort of like sociopathic lack of empathy or something like that? I don't really know. He never talks about it. But the thing that Robert Foster Kennedy will say when he hears that Barbara has married Brooks Bakeland, he will say, God forfend that they ever have a child. A little foreshadowing. Yikes. They will have a child. But alas, at this time, Barbara Daly, pretty, living it up, maybe a little baseline of madness on the hunt for a husband. Mama Nina is all in for this plan. Mama Nina calls society, high society, the mon. Like the ton over in England where we have our debutante system here. They're like the mon, which the money, right? This is Mm -hmm. Nina's goal. But society people who Nina knows thinks this is tacky. Like, you just have the money. You don't talk about the money. You don't give the money a name like the mon. Elizabeth Archer Bakeland will recall, I felt that Mrs. Daly was responsible for all Barbara's flights of fancy. She had brought Barbara up to be a duchess. Well. Right? It's Yes. And yet we don't have those here. So, yes, that is... Well, Babs has it going on, and Mama is perpetuating Babs having it going on. So you see where we are. Barbara's going to land her first real catch, John Jacob Astor the Sixth. Wow, I've heard I've heard that name, Jakey, to his friends, and they're kind of an item. Jakey is a catch in his own right, but not the one that Barbara's going to want to settle on, albeit not for lack of him trying. Jakey is going to get married and all this. This is like 1943 and the timelines get a little wonky. But here's the best I can figure out for how it breaks down based on numerous players in the game talking about it within the book Savage Garden. Okay, so Barbara and Jakey are a thing. And with Barbara's good looks and charms and being a pretty famous beauty in New York City, Barbara gets asked to go out for a screen test in Hollywood. Like you do. Yeah, like... It, mm-hmm. Barbara goes, does a screen test with Dana Andrews. Barbara's role will not be, alas, in Hollywood, but she does make an important connection on this trip. Barbara makes a friend, Cornelia Bakeland. Cornelia goes by her nickname, Dickie. 
And Dickie has a younger brother, Brooks. Brooks and Barbara are introduced, and the rest is history, and not all of it is good. From an acquaintance, Dickie and Barbara had probably met in Hollywood. Dickie, you see, was in the movies, too. She was in Cover Girl with Rita Hayworth and Gene Kelly. They wanted her to stay on, but she hated it. She hated it as much as Barbara did. Dickie was quite impressed with Barbara. I mean, they'd be bound to like each other because they were both very verbal and bright and very beautiful. And later, as a matchmaker, she had Brooks and Barbara for the weekend. And there's no question, that weekend was momentous. Here we talking about Brooks. Oh, God, Brooks. Brooks Bakeland is the son of a son of an important man. Son of a son of an inventor. Grandson. Correct. <laughs> we don't have to use the word begat. We we just can say grandson. Yeah, but I like Buffett's son of a son of a sailor. Mm-hmm. Son of a son of a preacher man. Nope. <laughs> Brooks is the grandson to a real famous, real rich dude. This guy is Leo Bakeland. Granddaddy Leo makes his first fortune in 1899 by inventing photographic paper, like, you know, for photographs, Mm -hmm. and selling the rights to his photographic paper to George Eastman of the future Eastman Eastman Kodak Kodak Mm -hmm. fortunes. Grandpa Leo sells the photo paper for a million dollars in 1899. This will buy Leo a large estate and a car, which, honestly, to the horse-owning neighbors around Leo, they call Leo the gasoline devil. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) And sure, photo paper is fun, but Leo's real cash comes a few years later. Because Leo's out in his, uh, whatever, laboratory one day, tinkering around with shellacs. Well, like substitutes for shellacs, really, and he ends up inventing plastic. Oh, my God. Bakelend will invent what becomes Bakelite. His patent for Bakelite is granted in 1909, and a new age is upon us. my God, we're still in it, yeah. You can make Bakelite turn into anything. Radios, cars, cosmetics. It permeates the culture. Keeping this story focused in on where we're here, Leo's son, George Washington Bakeland, isn't too interested in running his father's plastics company. So Grandpa Leo is going to sell to Union Carbide for $16.5 million. Today, it's a little under $300 million. Yeah, that sounds right. Leaving the family and Leo's grandson, Brooks, with what Brooks likes to call fuck you money. <laughs> it's what he calls it his whole life. Because people were prim and proper back then. Fuck you money. Brooks has it. Grandpa Leo passes away in 1944, and Brooks, as his upper crust friends like to refer to him, they call him a intellectual Errol Flynn. Handsome, sure, charming, the veneer of class, and, well, fuck you money, right? Brooks is super smart. He's like his grandfather. Formal education all the way up to just about to finish his PhD in physics. But he doesn't finish because he gives it up to pursue a career in writing. How can Brooks do this? Fuck you, money. You got it. He wants to write the great American novel. Don't we all? 
So he's been a struggling, not he will struggle with his writing career that never goes anywhere because of the FU money. Okay. It is a life of many of the seven deadly sins for Brooks, but alas, it is Brooks and Barbara who meet through Dickie out in Hollywood, and Barbara sets her sights on the handsome and intellectual, dashingly pirate-swarthy good looks, Errol Flynn in the flesh, <laughs> but smarter, of Brooks Bakeland. And it is, see you, Jakey Astor. Barbara has better things to do. An acquaintance recalls Barbara left Hollywood and came back east. She did so expecting to be sued by the studio, but not giving a damn. She was joy to mama, now considering giving in to John Jacob Astor's strenuous and stertorious courting. Have you ever seen a picture of him? He looked very like Louis XVI and was dubbed by time the pear-shaped prince of the idle rich. His father went down with the other gentlemen on the Titanic, singing Nearer My God to Thee. But after the screen test, the studio decided not to try to keep her. Miss Daly was not, they could see, of rich thespian ore. In fact, she would have made the worst actress in the world. Brooks, Barbara's future husband, will recall. I am not sure why Barbara changed her mind about John Jacob Astor. I may have been the innocent reason. In any case, he was still married at the time to Tucky French. He married various tarts, but Tucky was not one of them. Hers was a family as distinguished as his own. But it was at this time, according to Barbara, still or again, a dewy young photographer's model living with her mother far above their means at the old Delmonico's that John Jacob Astor made her an offer of $3 million. Money in those days if she would wait for him until he could get a divorce from Tucky French. <sighs> Brooks goes on. Now, I don't remember the exact order of events, whether Barbara turned down the bribe before or after she met me. I was a pilot trainee in the Royal Canadian Air Force at the time and had been invited by my sister Dickie, who lived in Ridgefield, Connecticut, with her first husband to come for the weekend. I had to leave and I met a pretty girl who was a poet. Brooks really does have a lot to say. <laughs> he will go on. I found a remarkably beautiful and staggeringly self-assured young woman whose pretensions to poetry puzzled me when I plumbed them. She thought it would be wonderful to be a poet, but she had no training in words, and I hurt her feelings by calling what she showed me marmalade. To skip a banal story of sex and still embryonic violence that might interest the readers of a woman's magazine during a heated zigzag from Ridgefield to the Adirondacks to the lacy fluffy abode of mother and daughter at Delmonico's to finally Pinehurst, North Carolina, Miss Daly strongly intimated to me that she was pregnant. I took her across the border to Bennettsville, South Carolina, and for $2, the court fee, and $10 for a wedding band, I made her into Mrs. Brooks Bakeland and myself for the next 30 years into Barbara's husband. And so it begins. <laughs> Brooks does say one other thing here, which I think is potentially key to understanding how this goes. I think he's really got an idea of what his wife is like, 
after saying she's pregnant to rush into marriage in 1944. Like, there's no baby. But Barbara Daly set her sights. She wants to catch him. She finds a way to catch him. Brooks says this. Barbara adopted this irrepressible red-headed Irish persona to cover up whatever deficiencies she thought she had. She didn't know things that everyone else knew or that she assumed everyone else knew and that, in fact, they probably did know, and she couldn't entirely catch up with the head start that the people she wanted to know had on her. And this persona that she adopted eventually took over. And now it really begins. It's a great time to take a quick break. We're going to come back for the marriage part after we hear a word from our sponsors. See you on the flip. Hi, everybody. I'm Katie Segal. And I'm Kurt Sutter. And welcome to our new podcast called Pi, People, Influences, and Experiences. Yes, it's sort of the uh, get to know you at a deeper level, the who, what, when, where, and why you are rather than what it is you do. Absolutely. We're not going to talk too much about what people do. We just want to know about their families, where they come from, you know, what shapes their parenting if they have kids, what shapes their marriages if they're married. We just want to be really nosy. We want to get in there. A deep dive into nature and nurture. And we started it because there are a lot of people that we don't know that we are curious about. Right. And I have no friends, so for me, it's, you know... Try like, to get them out of the house. Listen to it on whatever you listen to. <laughs> Podcasts on yeah, podcast homecast your, 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 your podcasting apparatus. Watch it on the YouTube. He's aging himself. All right, Alicia. These two are married for two dollars and ten dollars in South Carolina. That's it. Barbara and Brooks do get married nineteen forty four across the state lines on a cheap shotgun wedding where. No gun has gone off. Brooks will say, I soon realized that whether Barbara was pregnant or not, and she was not, I had not married a soulmate, but a powerful and ambitious antagonist. She was far more brilliant and a far stronger personality than I ever was or could be. That's how it starts. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's gotta be a, wow. So married life for the couple is complicated in a lot of ways. Barbara will go to training camp with her husband. And these early days are some of the best that they will share. But apparently they like to fight. They like the fight sex toxicity thing, which is fine. A lot of couples get into that. This time it just gets a little dangerous. There's a lot of psychosis between the two. So not too far down along the way, a real pregnancy does come along. Nobody tell Dr. Robert Foster Kennedy. And the couple will welcome a son, Anthony, Tony, in 1946. And Tony's always with his mother, Barbara, and his grandmother, Nina. Some unusual things here. Kids always around. And with the war over now and some fuck you money, the couple entertains quite a bit. They live on the Upper East Side. They entertained famous people Greta Garbo, Tennessee Williams, Salvador Dali. Guest lists are filled with the rich and the famous and the noteworthy. Barbara becomes known for her hijinks is probably a good blanket term for that, but her explosive temper 
her volatile behavior and drinking alcohol to excess, which I can't imagine yeah. helps the situation terribly yeah. much. It's not usually a moderating influence. In addition to rampant adultery extramarital mm. affairs from both Barbara and Brooks. They're pretty unhappy as a couple, but the entertaining is fun. Their dinner parties are pretty legendary, apparently for the dessert hour. After dinner, everyone would retire into the salon or the drawing room, where the men would line up behind a backlit curtain and drop their trousers, and the women in the room would have to guess whose appendage belonged to who from the men behind the curtain. Rich people are different. All right. I mean, fun games and fuck you money, right? All right, so when Tony is eight, the family of three is off to Europe. They've kind of conquered New York, and the Bakelins really just flit around all kinds of locales. If you can think of the place to be in the season, in the best city, in the best country, that's where the Bakelins are going. And they kind of live this nomadic existence from one high society global locale to the next high society global locale still entertaining the rich, the famous, and the noteworthy. Both Barbara and Brooks, now our extramarital affairs have just gone, like, international. Yeah, global. That's that's Mm -hmm. fine. And, you know, Brooks would like to go. Can we just be done with this, Barbara? Let's just call it done. Brooks knows he's married to an unstable woman, and again, they don't get along, and it's very toxic, and they're stuck in something. He'll cheat. He'll want to leave. Barbara will threaten suicide. He'll threaten to cheat. She'll go do something daring to try to get his attention and start a new affair, which never prompts him to have the reaction that she... Yeah. You can see these two are very much at cross purposes. Every time Brooks makes a real move to dissolve this thing and call it done, Mm -hmm. Barbara will threaten or attempt suicide. I can count four total attempts through the course of the marriage. Brooks, I will pay you to go. Barbara will not go. Toxic. This all happens in the push and pull of Tony growing up international exotic locales. By the early 1960s, Brooks has fallen in love with a French girl, a daughter of a French diplomat, 15 years his junior. And this is the one that he would really, really like to leave Barbara for. Barbara, I would like to be done with this. Barbara will again attempt suicide. Brooks will reunite with her. He just, he can never. Yeah, yeah. He just can't do it. But again, Tony growing up. I want to get us to uh, 1967 here. We're still in international locales. And I want to shift the story from Barbara and Brooks, who are just kind of in their toxicity over Tony. Because in 1967, Tony is 20, and he's going to meet Jake Cooper, known as Black Jake. Not because of any type of coloring Jake Cooper has, it's because of his character. He is a low-down, dirty dog, Black Jake. He's tall, dark, he has a silver earring. Think of bisexual Australian Charles Manson. He has a colt, he has a bag of magic mushrooms, (laughs) he's got skull bones hanging around a necklace like black jake is dangerous naturally tony is hooked tony's in love with black jake well having grown up in like the ultimate toxicity yeah head over heels 
Black Jake, for his part, is taking advantage of Tony because Tony has cash and money and access and can buy drugs for the cult. Barbara, through a friend of hers, gets wind of this and takes off cross-country lines to rescue her son from the dastardly Black Jake. With a little bit of customs trouble, this will land both Barbara and Tony in jail (laughs) overnight internationally, where Barbara's like, oh, you're manacled to me now, Tony, 1967. All right. Barbara gets Tony home. Barbara is horrified that her son is gay. This will never, ever, ever do. But the two of them are now back in Spain. And Tony begins to see a girl. Huzzah! (laughs) The heavens rejoice. Her name is Sylvie. And Barbara, Mama, is really plotting. Kind of like Nina, but plotting for her son's future happiness in a heterosexual life. Sylvie's beautiful. And she's very young and she's very nice. And for Barbara's purposes, Sylvie's a girl. So, huzzah! Mm -hmm. Barbara meddles, fully supporting this, plying Sylvie with all the financial details of the family. You can marry my boy and be set for life. Why don't you come over for dinner? Why don't you come with us on holiday? Sylvie likes the marrying an heir part. A lot. But it's not Tony that she's going to go for, Sylvie. Uh-oh. Uh-huh. You is it, know. the Brooks? You bet your tail it's Brooks. Wow. <laughs> Sylvie is stepping it up for <sighs> Papa Brooks. And Sylvie and Papa Brooks have a secret affair that goes on for a while. But it is revealed in early 1968, leaving Barbara to attempt suicide again. But this time, Brooks will not be deterred. Barbara and Brooks will separate to divorce. Brooks wants to marry Sylvie. The wreckage, the squabble, the fights, the everything over this all leaves everyone in a very damaged sort of place. Barbara and Tony are going to move in together. They head to London. They get a little place in Chelsea. They're trying to piece it together their lives without Brooks. Brooks, meanwhile, Hightails it. He wants nothing to do with any of this psychosis because Brooks knows it's all terrible. My son is unstable. I've been married to an unstable woman for a long time. I'm in love with a very young girl. I would like to keep her out of the fray of whatever damage is happening. So Brooks is just out waiting for the divorce. And Barbara here is going to make some new friends, finding lovers. Never been a problem for Barbara. And you have to understand, Barbara and Tony are close. They've always stuck together. Tony's always been at Barbara's side from the beginning, even at some of those fancy dinner parties. We'll talk about that in just a second. Whatever the relationship between mother and son, however terrible it has been in the past, it is going to get more terrible in the future. Tony is just as disturbed mentally or possibly more so than his mother In the late 60s, Tony's making some pretty weird art, and Barbara will shop it around to her lover. His art doesn't really go anywhere. Like, the two very much are living in their own private Idaho. But essentially, at this point where we are, Brooks and Barbara are done. They are trashily separated, squabbling over details about the divorce part. Brooks is out. Barbara and Tony in Chelsea. 
But essentially at this point, Brooks and Barbara are done. The trashy separation has occurred. The divorce part they're squabbling about. But there's no need to be divorced when you're a widower. Hmm. As Brooks will be soon. We're going to take a break now. Wow. Good cliffhanger there. And come back for the rest of the Greek tragedy, which really more of the listener be advised section. Gotcha. On the flip. All right. So this is the part where the Greek tragedy rears its murderous head. I mean so much. Mother and son have a complicated relationship. (laughs) You don't say. Friends of mom. And friends of Tony and doctors of both are concerned about whatever kind of private Idaho they're living in. Brooks has accounted for their basic needs. They have housing, they have food, but other emotional needs are not necessarily being met by the outside world. And Tony, I want you to know, has always been a little bit unstable. Just from the beginning. The only thing that has unified Barbara and Brooks in this marriage is their son, Tony, and the fact that they both think he is a certified genius. There's no one more special in the world than our boy. He is a genius, and they put a lot of pressure on that kid to where Tony feels a lot of pressure to be the kind of genius his parents expect, where maybe Tony just wants to be a kid. I have a few examples. At those dinner parties where everybody drops trow and tries to guess each other's appendages, another fun thing that happened, uh, one acquaintance remembers that the Bakelins order their young son to read aloud from the erotic writings of the Marquis de Sade as kind of a dessert little presentation. Oh, that's, you know, that's, that's cute. Kids Kids are cute. Another friend will break off contact with the couple after (laughs) hearing Brooks's evident pride. Brooks will describe how Tony had pulled the wings off a fly to see how it would affect the fly's balance. (sighs) The shocked friend said, That kind of sadistic behavior is quite common in children, but one seldom sees a father who thinks it's marvelous. Tony likes to torture animals. Oh, God. Another person recalls him. This is a little bit older. He's about 12 at this point. Ripping crabs on the beach apart. His parents show off his art, right? Like he has the art thing back in 69, but as a child, you know, when they frame his art, his art is bloody humans, scenes of violence. Like there's some. So, yeah, this was a kid who needed interventions that were either unavailable at the time or that his parents were too off their rockers to look His for. parents are too off their own rockers to realize. I mean, they think he's a genius. Whatever Tony does is, is just fantastic. Okay, so all through their European years. So they've got this baby monster that they're hauling around Europe with them. That's mm-hmm. great. Pretty much it. Sorry, EU. Doctors and friends over there think that Tony's a bit off. Like, there are stories internationally yeah. of, I don't know if you uh, friends out there listen to Warren Zevon. Tony is excitable boy. I didn't go with that song for this one, but it was the runner-up. For as traumatic, disturbing, upsetting as all of this is, both in the domestic U.S. and internationally, once Brooks bails, 
Now it's just Barbara and Tony together. Sort of the, what, the loci of instability? Yes. The two of them, like, I mean, it sounds like Brooks certainly had his own problems, but okay. So so now you're just in this feedback loop of the two of them. 100%. So Barbara gets an idea and she decides to conquer what she perceives to be the problem, which is her son's homosexuality. So Barbara is going to hire sex workers to assist Tony. Sometimes joining in with the sex workers when they're not able to do the work that she has hired professionals to do. This is deeply disturbing. I'm telling you this is deeply disturbing. This will lead to Barbara raping her son and years of following incest. It is all terrible. Again, not natural in the course of things, but Barbara is determined to cure her son. This is nightmarish. This begins as early as 1969. This is the fallout from the Sylvie thing. Now, all of that is bad. Add a little bit of worse onto this. Barbara doesn't keep this a secret. She tells her friends her awesome plan to turn her kids straight. She'll call up friends and say, Oh, Tony and I just spent the most lovely morning lying in bed reading papers. She's not... There's no guilt. There's no psychosis. Barbara thinks of this as she's providing therapy for her son. This is clinical. Yeah, there's a there's some diagnosable stuff happening here. Tony, on the other hand, this is not really therapy for Tony. He has really always, already and always been a pretty dark kid. He has now been turned on to psychedelics back with Black Jake, Mm -hmm. still continuing to use drugs. And Tony is going to be affected in ways that will fold into the manifestation of our story. Tony is trying to kill his mother as early as 1970. Hard, Hard to imagine otherwise. By 72, he tries to throw her under a bus, but he's unsuccessful in his attempt. There are a lot of cries for help from Tony to his friends, to his father, before the fatal end that will come. Tony is being admitted in and out of hospital for treatment, but he never stays too long. And every time he comes out, his behavior escalates. He threatens Barbara, his mother, with knives in front of guests. He cracks eggs on her skull. He is cruelly and physically lashing out. There's an attempt to stab her in the eye one night with a pen. Tony is going in between catatonic states to paranoia to childlike behavior. Tony's not well. Doctors by the autumn of 1972 are telling Barbara, your son wants to kill you. Not only does he want to kill you, we believe he is capable of actually doing so. Barbara has never heard a bad word about her beloved Tony. It is November 17th, 1972, after years of being abused by his mother, that Tony will succeed in matricide. He kills his mother in a violent attack while she is making dinner for him, leaving Barbara Daly Bakeland dead at the age of 51. Tony is 25 at the time, and 
dead mom on the floor, but Tony needs dinner. So he's going to call for Chinese takeout and will be found eating the Chinese takeout when the authorities show up to arrest him. This is horrible. This is so horrible. It's a pretty disturbing story. Trash Pandas wanted it. Hey, Alicia, do this one. Well, I hope you've learned your lesson, <laughs> Trash Pandas. Tony is taken into custody. Yeah. But Tony is almost even unaware. Every time someone comes to visit, he's like, how's my mom doing? Because of the tragic story, backstory, years of yeah, yeah. all of it. There's a lot of sympathy that Tony gets within the courts. A lot of pity. The decision is made instead of sending Tony to jail to instead put Tony into Broadmoor, a mental institution. It Let's, sounds like he might have benefited from that years earlier. Which, if he had stayed, in retrospect, might have been the best thing for him. Because friends of Tony's, after about six years, are like, hey, Tony's doing so great having a daily schedule, daily medication, daily treatment for his psychosis over here in Broadmoor. He's doing awesome. So his friends and powerful associations and, well, the American Embassy, there are a lot of people that really get on Tony's side to solicit Tony's release from Broadmoor. Tony is released from Broadmoor July 21st, 1980, but it is a conditional release. A few promises had to be made. The first of those is that Tony will be going to live back in New York City with his 87-year-old grandmother, Nina. I, I don't like where this is going. Huzzah! Tony's out of the hospital. And you think it's all going to be great, but it's oh, not no. going to. No, I don't. No, no, I don't. don't, think no, that don't. At all. Yeah, no, mm -hmm. it's going to be bad. So Tony heads back to New York City, living in the Upper East Side with 87-year-old Nanny, who adores him. And she, just like her daughter, thinks the world of him and wants to help her beloved grandson rebuild his life after murdering her daughter. So it's a little complicated. Tony, arriving in New York City, will go about promptly to building a shrine for his late mother and repeating satanic verses over the ashes in her urn. And it is six days after Tony's arrival in New York, reunited with grandmother. Tony requests to make an overseas call and Nana Nina will not let him and Tony will stab his grandmother eight times with a kitchen knife. Unlike her daughter, Grandma Nina does survive the attack, but this time the system is not going to pity Tony. Like when the cops arrive, Tony is yelling at his grandmother, why won't you just die already? Like he can't seem to kill her. <sighs> so there, there's not a lot of pity this yeah. time around. Yeah. Tony is put into Rikers Island to await trial. Where before Tony can go to trial, March 20th, 1981, Tony is found dead in his cell suffocated by a plastic bag, the material his great-grandfather had invented. 
Maybe suicide, maybe murder. Nobody really knows how the end of Tony Bakeland happened. Okay, I hate that we had to go through all of that horror to get to the kicker there at the end. Tony's end came at the age of 33, and I think the majority of this tale really does reinforce something that we have seen on this podcast a lot. Money cannot buy happiness. All the fuck you money in the world didn't do anybody any good in this particular tragic tale. There's a lot wrapped up in that one. It's like every Greek tragedy component in one story. I hope y'all are happy, Trash Pandas. You asked for it. I know. I'm not. I'm not happy with you guys for asking for that. That was a little dark for you. You don't. To, no, you, I you don't do dark very often. I don't. Brooks and Sylvie will get married. They Good will have them. a son. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, all's well that ends well. And I think there is a movie. I haven't seen the movie with Julianne Moore, but there's a movie called Savage Grace. I read the book, but there's a movie too. I'll watch it after I'm done with the story. I always like to do my research, but... I will never watch that. No, that is the tale of... That is the trashy divorces tale of Brooks Bakeland and his wife, Barbara Daly Bakeland, and the pending Greek tragedy from it all. I'm going to need a nice long soak in the tub or something. That was... That was a lot. That was pretty trashy. That was grim. Trashy in different ways than we normally go. Uh, yeah. A little comedy show. Alicia, thank you so much for reacting to listener preferences. We're going to come back with a little bit lighter fare for our next episode. This one was a little bit heavy. Thanks for sticking with me, Stacy. I know that is not normally your thing. Nope. Thank you, though. We are going to follow up with a fun bit of that story about regimes on Patreon this week. We've got other spiderwebs and nightcap chat and all the good stuff over there. If you want to check out the Patreon community at patreon.com slash trashy divorces. Also, you can get some free episodes. Yeah, head to bit.ly slash trash candy. Just plug that into your browser and it'll take you to our little liberated from the paywall section. Which rotates over time. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in today to this different kind of trashy divorces tale. Darker than normal, more disturbing than normal, perhaps. Larger body count than usual. We've had some pretty high body counts, to be honest, but we haven't had a body count in a minute. So, yeah, yeah, there you go. Everybody, have a wonderful week on the heels of all that. Happy Thanksgiving, Shazam. Keep your hearts clean. Oh, my God. No. Keep your hands clean. <laughs> Keep your hearts clean after that. I don't even know. God, go clean your hearts and uh, and then wash those hands after, I guess. Out, out, damn spots. <laughs> Seriously, y'all, clean hands, trashy hearts. We're going to go get ourselves back right with the trashy universe. We'll see you next time. Bye. Big love. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. 
check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening. Keep it trashy, y'all.